I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. One of the most interesting aspects of the post-pandemic economy has been the rise of retail investing and trading. COVID has not only carved the world up into winners and losers, but the intermittent cancellation of sports and in-person entertainment has pushed those of us lucky enough to have disposable income and a little spare time into online investing and trading. And it's often taking place not only online, but also on mobile phones and apps as the digitalization of the economy has matured at breakneck speeds. Still, a lot of this trading has come under scrutiny, especially when it comes to firms like Robinhood, where apps deploy visual special effects and sounds to encourage users to spend more time and money on their platform, leading critics to charge that they are making trading addictive and modeling their tactics after video games and other online digital experiences. Now, as someone who spends a good bit of time thinking about the future of consumer protection and financial markets, this kind of criticism is supremely unusual and kind of interesting. And so we've invited Andrew Fishman onto the show to give listeners a better feel as to how and whether gamification really might be able to make trading addictive. Now, Andrew is a unique fellow. He's a therapist and licensed clinical worker who specializes with teens and video game addiction. And more than anyone I know, he has a very real understanding of what happens when gamification is no longer a game. Andrew, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Andrew, your specialty area is really an interesting one as a social worker, uh, delving into the psychology of video games, um, especially for uh, the youth. So maybe you can just tell us a bit about how you got started in this in the first place, and, and how did you ever get into the psychology of video games? Well, I've been playing video games since I was very little. Um, I, I think I got my first system when I was eight. I got a Game Boy Color. Uh, dressed up as like, just up as a Game Boy that year for Halloween. I had a little Pokemon coming out the sides. It was great. Um, I so I've been so I've been a gamer forever. And the the intersection of games and psychology didn't really enter my space until I had already gotten a degree in social work and a license, and I was practicing. And I started doing some research because some of my clients were coming in saying that their parents complained about them playing too many games, and is it an addiction? And it became more of a uh, topic that everyone was talking about. So I started doing research and a lot of what I was reading really started to annoy me because I was reading articles by people who seemed like they were in their 70s or 80s, had never touched a game or if they had, it hadn't been since Pac-Man. And they were saying things that just weren't true. And so I some, some of the research was great. A lot of it just wasn't. So I started to do some my own research, do some writing, and um, I just really liked it. So it clicked. I won't take your comment about Pac-Man indicating that I'm an old fogey, since I remember it well. I just won't. But what I will do is uh, then jump into perhaps the data and your own professional insight with the big question du jour. Um, Can video games, and more importantly for this conversation, digital experiences, be addictive? 
And if so, under what circumstances and how would you even know? It's a really big question. I think that, I mean, the evidence points to, yes, digital experiences can be addictive. The most obvious example that people would be familiar with is, is gambling. If you go to a casino, the slot machines are all digital now. You don't even have real quarters in most casinos. You have a, a credit card of some kind so that the numbers pop up on the screen and they don't really feel like money anymore. It just feels like you're playing a game because that's what they want you to do. They want, you to, they want it to be divorced from your wallet in a way that doesn't feel like you're gambling with real money until you've lost a lot of it. And so in, in the most basic sense there, yes, it can be addictive because gambling is a kind of gaming. The evidence is starting to point to video games being their own kind of addiction for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that neurologically, it seems similar to other behavioral addictions. They have the same kind of effects on your reward system in your brain. They have, um, you know, people, people say that they really can't stop without some sort of help or intervention from a therapist. Um, and then for me, what's the, what's the most important piece of evidence is that people who both have a substance use disorder or an addiction and also a problem with, gam- with gaming, with video games, they say that it feels really similar. So if they have a craving for nicotine or for alcohol, what they say is that that feels a lot like the craving for World of Warcraft that they feel when they're at work and can't play. Is there an overlap for the two? Are people who are, say, addicted to nicotine more susceptible to being addicted to gaming? Uh, or is, is, is it just that if one is addicted, then the addict is prone to have the same sensory experiences and to, to maybe use the same vocabulary? That, um, what I think you're getting at is, is a really important question. So what I like to think is that video game addiction is usually a symptom rather than its own disorder, rather than its own disorder. And what I mean by that is if you have clinical depression, and so it's hard for you to get out of bed in the morning, you feel sad most days, it, it's just hard for you to do anything, you have a lack of energy. And all you can do is roll out of bed, eat sometimes, and play video games for 12 hours a day. You really have a video game addiction, or is it just depression and you also like video games? So, in my experience and opinion, most people who play too many video games don't really have an addiction. They have something else that looks like a video game addiction. I think that it exists on its own, but it's much rarer than people think. So, when parents come in and say, My kid is addicted to video games, I start to wonder is, is, does this kid have social anxiety? Does this kid have ADHD? Does this kid have depression? Some, some of the other things that we know um, are what we call comorbid with video game addiction, meaning um, that they happen in tandem and, and affect one another in, a, in sort of a positive relationship. One creates the other. So many of us have been stuck at home for the last year, especially, uh, again, those of us who, who do have the leisure and the luxury of working at home. And people have tried to fill their time with lots of activities, including video games and retail investment and, and, and trading. Uh, given the big changes, have you seen a big pickup in terms of addictive disorders and digital experiences? Absolutely. There has been, I, th- I think exactly to your point, I've had a number of adolescent clients come in and say, my parents hate that I'm playing all video games all day. What else am I supposed to be doing? And when I talk to them, they're like, well, my, my hockey game was, pra- was canceled. I can't do that anymore. I can't go hang out with friends. My parents won't let me because it's not safe. My school is canceled. 
extracurricular activities, all of them are canceled. I'm at home all day. It's like play video games or read. That's, those are my, those are my options or do extra homework. Who's going to choose that as a, as a 15 year old? And so what their parents are seeing is an uptake in video games. And sometimes it's a problem. And sometimes it's just the only thing the kid can do to get some enjoyment out of life. When you think about what you're seeing on the ground and, and then you uh, see the alienation that, that a lot of people have felt over the last year, and then you move to the big debate here in Washington, D.C., and as I'm sure you've noticed, people have been uh, trying to draw analogies. Um, uh, people with free time aren't just on video games. Uh, the argument goes they're also using their smartphones and, and laptops for other things too, including uh, investing and trading. Um, when you think about the platforms where this kind of activity is taking place and obviously the accompanying concerns, do you think the analogies are warranted or uh, are there misunderstandings when it comes to people's uh, perception as to what addiction means, again, in the context of digital experiences? I think that there's a very close relationship there. I do think that apps like uh, like Robinhood, Webull, other investment apps are really taking advantage of the same kind of behavioral psychology that video games have taken. Um, I think the the head of Blizzard Entertainment used to be a, a researcher, user experience researcher, meaning that he read all the psychology and tried to make the game as appealing as possible. But that also meant it became as addictive as possible. And so I think what you're seeing with other apps, investment apps in particular, is that while they're trying to make their apps user-friendly and intuitive and get people to keep coming back, they are intentionally or not making them more addictive by using the same tricks that we've seen for decades in casinos and in video games and really anything else that is habit-forming. And what do those tricks look like in practice? Uh, what do the apps do? What, what do users specifically see in terms of their experience, uh, regardless of context, to not, you know, that, that, that suck people onto the platform and, and, and keep them there? Do you, do you have any examples? Yeah, so Robinhood came under fire most obviously for having a confetti animation whenever you made your first trade. Um, I don't remember if it was every trade or just your first one, but they it really felt like it, it didn't feel like a serious financial decision. It felt like a step in the game, or yeah, you you got your first accomplishment, you got your first achievement in in a way that felt fun and less serious. And Robinhood makes its money by uh, increasing the volume of trades rather than you know making anybody any money. And so they want people to just invest and trade and trade and trade and trade and trade. And so they have push notifications with emojis, um, you know, like it's time to try again, flex emoji, cr laughing, crying emoji. Um, every time your stock changes five percent, it notifies you. They, when you search a, a particular stock it defaults to the view from the previous day of, of the changes rather than the week or the month or you know the year like would like you would expect from an investment app to say hey here are the overall trends if you're going to invest with this it's generally going up so people are trading sometimes thousands of times in a month in a way that feels much more like a game than it does really you know major financial ramifications 
Super interesting. So you're basically saying that the notifications themselves serve as a kind of stimulation and, and that the apps are constantly, I guess, sending signals to you and, and, and to your brain. And those signals can trigger, very obviously, uh, responses. So then is the argument that some of the trading apps are making people feel as if they're, they're playing a video game? Or is it, is it that the confetti... Uh, and the like uh, are just creating a pleasurable experience. I think I think that there's a difference here, right? But between the platform giving the impression that all the activity on it is just a game um, and that it's not that serious on the on the one hand, and then on the other hand saying, um, I know this is serious stuff, but boy, it's a lot of fun. Um, when people come into your office, are you seeing people underestimating the seriousness of what they're doing? Or is it that they're just enjoying what they're doing online so much that they don't really care what the consequences may be? I think it's a little bit of both. And I, I, I think you're right that we can't really demonize these companies for wanting to make their apps streamlined and good-looking and fun to use. But then when it, when it starts to feel like a game that you know, you'll just win if you keep going and you keep trading and trading and trading, and then you're thousands in the hole because it felt like fun and you you weren't paying attention to what the actual numbers meant. It just felt good to see numbers going up and then sometimes they go down, but oh, shucks, that's just how you play a game. Sometimes you're down. When you're playing with more money than you should be risking. And so I think that it's it's a really close call, whether it's becoming a game. And I think that it is for some people or whether it's just becoming a, a really versatile, interesting app to use, whether you know, it's just fun investing, or whether it's really a, a, a game with a capital G. Have you seen any of your clients coming to you complaining about addiction in investing? Is, is this a big problem, um, even for younger people? But most of my clients don't have money. You work with adolescents, so I haven't seen it personally. But in terms of therapist forums and people that I've talked to, colleagues directly, Absolutely. It seems like people are, um, millennials especially, are just diving into this new financial world, especially after GameStop, just thinking, well, this person made you know $100,000 overnight. I should get in on that. I, I saw somewhere that a, a huge number of Americans, like you know, 30% of Americans bought stock after GameStop, just trying to get in on that, which is ludicrous. Uh, I, bought, I bought GameStop stock. I bought it too late because Robinhood then shut down. And it was the whole thing, um, but it just felt—it felt like a sure thing. It felt like you could just buy into this. When you design an app, you can do it in a way that makes it obviously more pleasurable. But are these apps learning from a, a, a wide variety of digital platforms? I mean, are, are they taking or learning things from other domains, whether it be? Uh, Facebook or social media, or are they really doubling down again on the psychology of games and, and video games and, and gaming? I think that it's becoming really blurry, that line. I mean, the, the Red Cross app that for, you can sign up for to donate blood, they have achievements and accomplishments and you invite your friends in the same way that you do in an investment app. And so they do this because they know that it will get people coming back and um, will make them want it, it's 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 meaningless, but if, if you can get the vampire badge by donating blood around Halloween, that's a little bit fun. That's a little bit like a game. And so 
it's so hard to tell whether that makes it a, a, a quote unquote game or not. And whether it's just making the, the, the app more interesting is really hard to tell. I think that it's becoming sort of impossible for apps who don't gamify to survive. Google Plus, for example, tried to do that, tried to break into the social media sphere without all the, without all the tactics that Facebook was using. And it failed spectacularly. Nobody used Google Plus because they weren't randomizing things. They weren't putting colorful notifications on. They weren't you know, sending recommendations and push notifications and all, this, all the things that Facebook does to keep its users engaged. I just don't know that there's a space for that. You brought up a really interesting example of the Red Cross. And what I think strikes me as uh, pretty fascinating is that I, I suppose context really matters here, right? And that in the right circumstances... Uh, behavioral nudges can actually lead to socially optimal outcomes. Um, certainly, this is something that other people like Cass Sunstein uh, have observed in other policy arenas. So, so sitting back, when you look at these very different contexts, to what extent do you get the sense that there is some purposeful evaluation of, of deploying psychotechnology in positive ways? And in any event, are there any suggestions for people engaging with the new app? I, I think to your to, to the first thing you mentioned, that I, I, I do think that this sort of gamification can be very positive. I, I play a game every day called Habitica, which is basically a to-do list. But every time I check something off, it gives me a little bit of experience points and some fake currency that I can use to level my character up. And it's, it's, it's silly, but it just, every time I take out the garbage, I get a little bit of external motivation and it's great. And so it's, it's, it's helped me keep track of all the things I have to do and to keep on the things that I don't want to do. Um, I think that when somebody downloads an app for the first time to really take note of how this app is trying to get your attention, is it trying to directly reward you? Is it trying to engage with other people? Is it trying to have a social connection to the game? or the, the app, rather? Is it trying to um, make it fun? And sometimes that's very positive. And sometimes it's, I don't know that I want my bank account to be fun. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that Chase and other banks don't have things like this, but I, I suspect they might in the future because it just seems like that's how the way the world is heading. So just try to be aware and take note of how, the, how these apps are trying to manipulate you before you get hooked. I think that just knowing about it can give you some power. Andrew, thanks so much for joining the show. This is really unique insight, and it's uh, so helpful um, having people like you offering their perspective to these really novel issues. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Gamification is anything but child's play. It involves the deployment of both technology and psychology in ways that we, as a society, are still just starting to understand, especially in a digital economy. What does seem clear is that, as in the past, human beings are discovering ever new ways to deploy tools to impact how we behave with one another and with our environment. And their increasing sophistication raises red flags where people are exploited, and creates new opportunities for public-minded entrepreneurs and social ventures. Now, even in an ever-changing marketplace, I think it's safe to say that the stakes for firms engaging in abusive or deceptive practices are much greater in finance than perhaps anywhere else. 
what is in short acceptable in social media won't necessarily be as acceptable, especially in a highly regulated environment. That said, how regulators respond when users themselves delight in the games is far from clear. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.